Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. Each week, we bridge the gap between science and in-the-trench experience for physique enhancement. I'm your host, John Jewett. Let class begin. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our first episode of J3 University Podcast. It's an exciting one to get going, so this will be a compliment to J3 University. And with me today is my co-host, Luke Miller. Luke, how's it going, man? Pretty good, man. Excited, excited to get this going. Yeah, we've uh, talked about J3 University for a long time. It's been in my mind for the past like two years and finally about to happen. When you listen to this, it might have already happened. So um, J3 University for me was, it's a culmination of my experiences of what I've gone through trying to become the best bodybuilder that I can. And it was always a frustration coming up when I first started that you try to learn everything you can and there wasn't a great source of information to do so. So I would look all over the place. I would study in school and pursued exercise science and nutrition. And that had some carryover to what I was doing, but it definitely wasn't uh, you know, applicable. And so then I would look out in the field, like who's talking about training and you get varied opinions. Um, you get the gurus and the guys that make a great case and, and can show you how to bodybuilding but it was kind of segmented still. So you could go to this guy and learn about training, but maybe it wouldn't cover some of the nutrition aspects. And then you're like getting your science background from school and you're like, well, some of this doesn't make sense and it's not all linking together just congruently. So finally, like now we're like in this information age where it's like, there's a ton of information available now and you have some really good guys putting out some um, combination of experience and um, you know, education literature, Put together and so this is was this site is basically when i started bodybuilding I, I needed a place to go an education platform to show me how to work through bodybuilding successfully and putting together like the science backing but not let that weigh me down and limit me from also the experience out in the field that i was gathering so i want basically a science-based approach that brings in the experience that, I, that i've culminated so this is uh, J3 University, so it's going to be the, the education platform, the, the place to come to learn how to take yourself through a higher level of physique development. We'll have it backed by science, but also heavily weighed in just experience through myself, through Luke, and through what we've done with co- uh, coaching other athletes to that level. And so that's, that's where this, this finally came to be. And it doesn't just have to be for bodybuilding, because that's me, like, we both coach throughout all divisions. So whether you're from bikini to wellness to men's physique or a bodybuilder, um, all this has great carryover over to you. And so that is our J3 University. But Luke, people might be a little new to hearing about you. Maybe they're not because if they're, they're, you know, following J3 and me and they probably have seen you as well. But if you want to give like a, some a brief background on, on yourself and where you're currently at, that would uh, be great. Yeah, so currently uh, I'm running a, a coaching business called No Switch Fitness. Um, same concept, you're just taking no, all switch in the pursuit of results. And for me, educationally, um, it's been an interesting process as I got into competing before my education started to follow that route. Um, I ended up getting a master's in exercise science from USF, and I had already been competing for about six years then. Um, and it was interesting to see kind of like Don was saying, the divergence between the academic world, academia, and what's actually applied within, within bodybuilding and physique sports. 
um, and and how there's not a lot of carryover, or there is some carryover, but not as much as you would expect from academia into what is applied. And so that kind of set me out on like that that journey of of finding that middle gap and bridging that gap between you know which information is actually the most applicable for individuals. Um, and I think that that is exactly where we're going to be able to provide the most value is what can we take from each sector and then apply it? Because I mean, I think I've been competing now like almost eight, nine years and not as long as John, right? But still like a lot of experience coaching athletes and, and what's been done in the trenches, but still at the same time, spend time doing research in grad school. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. Um, and I'm a competitive bodybuilder as well, so. Dude, actually, you've been competing about as long as I have because I, I, like, got in, like, I was old man in the sport. No, I'm not, not old, but uh, what was I, right at 25 when I decided to, like, turn into bodybuilding from powerlifting. Uh, but, you, I mean, it's there because I think it's cool because you did your first show natural, right? I did my first four shows natural. Four shows. <laughs> I think that's super insightful because you don't have any of the anabolics and gear to weigh on, so you truly have to know how to do nutrition and training. And I think that's where we see a lot of these dogmatic approaches pop up in bodybuilding too, not to get on a long tangent here, but uh, drugs can mask a lot of things, poor diet, poor training, um, poor effort. So uh, yeah, it'd be, it'd be cool to like, w once we start getting going here and, and digging into that, that insight and, and background. So, uh, but within that's, so with the podcast, that's what we're going to bring on. So we're going to have some rotations where we just do Q and A's from people within our following, uh, you know, week to week, answer your questions, but then also we want to bring on guests. So I know with J3 university, it's be heavily weighed on just me talking. So I think it's important to venture out in, in all these other people that are putting out quality information that are bridging that gap. And we're going to bring them to you and, and have interviews and address areas that we see need to be addressed and to try to bring together that, that education and tie it, tie it all in. So you have a, an approach to use that is the balance. And I think that's the, the key is striking the balance between experience and also science. Cause it's really easy to get like a rabbit hole in each one. You know, you, you start reading a, some text or some literature and you start diving deep down that pathway and you start losing sight of all the actual in the trench experience, or it goes the other way. You know, you've, you, you start just saying, oh, forget this science, you know, and you want to go back to kind of a, the basic approach. Um, so to, to find that balance is a, is a, is a sweet spot. Right? Um, so we do have a list of questions that we already gathered from you guys, and we'll dive into those and see how far we can get. So our topic for today was looking at post-show exercise programming. So we have to get fairly, fairly specific, just looking at like when you're coming from this post-show period, you just got off stage, what, what, are you, what are, would be your first steps? Because um, it is a time where you're coming from, a, could potentially coming from a high state of fatigue. Maybe you got some new judging critiques, feedback, and you're like, oh man, I need to really, need to bring up the arms now, uh, but can I train fully? Or, you know, uh, there's also lots of questions that pop up on nutrition and supplementation, everything revolving this stage. So you can go, deep dive in each area, but what we wanted to kind of hit on today was more of the, the programming and training side of things. Yeah, and we got a great question to kick us off. Um, a question from at Jamie Elevated asking, do you typically reduce volume and or call it cardio following a show or does it depend on the individual? Right, so, you know, of course, everything's always individual, but I, I don't ever wanna cop out 
and just say, oh, it just depends on the person. That's usually the answer that you hear. So uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give my thoughts and then we can maybe even dive into some individual, um, you know, examples there. So, so coming from the, the post-show period, um, so we have a few things going on with, with post-show. For one, you've already pretty much done a deload week leading up into your show, ideally. So you've had a few days off of training. Likely you've already had a reduction in training volume leading up into the show. So what personally like coming out of a show, I actually feel really pretty fresh already. Um, that might not always be the case, but I think if you're having coming out of your show and you feel extremely fatigued, that is probably something to look back through that prep and kind of analyze deeper. Like why did you have to get to that state and, and what were the errors made within that prep? But ideally you're coming, you had this, you had this great prep coming out um, and, and you're fresh. And typically would all start off with the training split and kind of looking at that from the, that volume aspect and what I was doing my previous week before I took like my show peak week deload. And so looking within that structure is kind of my, my starting point. And throughout my prep, I'm already tapering down volume. So by the time I get close to stage, I'm already at a pretty low volume set point. So that is usually my starting point. And I've already reduced, we'll talk about, I know we have some questions on set extenders and stuff like that. And um, so usually I'm already just doing straight sets. And so that'll kind of be my, my start into my week. Um, so volume would, will be very representative of what I did right before peak week. Um, and then the other aspect of the cardio piece. So that's getting a little bit into our, our energy expenditure side, right? And you're having to balance how much calories should you add in and, and how much exercise expenditure should you adjust for? And so looking at that, you have to kind of determine an estimate of what your maintenance calorie might be. And I, I went, it's where it does weigh into the individual is was that person doing an insane amount of cardio or were they on like an extremely low amount of food or was it a mix of both? And that drives some of the decision of where I want to be changing that energy balance. So say I had someone that had a reasonable amount of food, but they were doing that lot, a lot of cardio. Yeah, we're going to probably do a 50% a, a reduction in cardio. Now on the other side, if you had someone that was um, very, very low in food and maybe they weren't doing as much cardio, maybe they're just driving up a lot of steps. Oh, well, you can probably keep the steps going because those are very low taxing and increase food from there. So that might be your, your change that you make. I always keep a baseline of cardio in though. And it, it never would go below what like standard off-season levels that I, that I kind of set in place. Um, but in, in general, I would say for most, it's probably a 50, 60%, oh, 50, 40% reduction from what you were doing in, in contest prep. Yeah, I'd have to 100% agree there. I think a good point to pull out of that is the concept of a base volume. So that volume that you're training at like two weeks, three weeks out as the starting point of the, the volume and taking that first week to really reset form. And that's typically the first thing I'm looking at, right? Because uh, it's very easy, especially within our culture that we've kind of developed to be very, very logbook focused coming out of the gate, wanting to beat these numbers that we've been hitting, you know, three, four weeks out from the show when everything's going full bore and we're, we're moving things pretty well before that right before that stage point and coming out of a show, a lot of times those strength levels won't fully be there. 
And if we have a weak body part to address, most of the time that's a form reset that needs to happen. Um, we need to be looking at how we're executing our patterns. So um, week one is typically, for me, a, a base volume within possibly a one to two RIR with execution being the primary focus. And then we're week two pulling that RIR in order to be able to start setting logbook numbers and training and, and things along those natures. Um, as far as the cardio, I would have to 100% agree about the 40 to 50% cardio drop. Again, depending on what had to be pushed the most for the individual. Um, I, I will admit that when it comes to the nutrition side, I have a tendency um, just as a trend line, if you want to look at it and experience with post-show, to be a little bit more aggressive on the nutrition side as far as getting someone out of that state. So if you want to term it like recovery versus reverse diet type of a concept, but not so far in which we're going to blow condition straight out the gate, right? We want to stay sensitive to food. We want to be able to take advantage of extending that, that sensitivity to food for as long as we can in the same notion, getting us out of that feeling of just death under a bar, under a hack squat or whatever it may be when it comes to those compounds. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great point to you about resetting form. So I know at the end of prep, you're like, <laughs> and, it, and it's, it's so like, if you've come from a background of like high effort training, the logbook and chasing those, those strength gains are, are so tempting. And towards the prep, you're trying to hang on to it and form might be slipping. And it, it's just, uh, you don't want it to, you're going to talk about it. Like, you know, that's not what to do, but it kind of happens. And so that first week resetting form, you're almost resetting your, your stimulus per set as well. Cause you might find yourself being able to get more out of each set. And to keep in mind, like you're coming from a week with a, a deload and dropping a ton of fatigue. So you potentially could have like some very, very effective sets going on. So it really wouldn't even justify adding more without it, without a doubt. And I think like you said, the RIR of, of like a one to two, which I know some of us listen to this and they're just like crucify because we brought up our, you know, RIR, but it has application. Um, you know, you'll learn Luke and I's like, you know, kind of thought process on, on this, but at least the first week, consider it like that introduction week back to your volume. You have form locked in of what you want to continue throughout your off season and to manage some of the fatigue that could occur from making your sets so effective is you just keep one or two reps in the tank. And then that next week, you can progress it up from there. But this, this first week, we just want to make sure that we, you do lock in, engage, and you can measure mm -hmm. that response that you're going to get from your training versus you go all out for a couple of days and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm beat to shit. Or you, worse, you like injure yourself coming off from this, this prep. And do, you, know, you brought up having like a, a pretty aggressive like nutrition increase from, from, the, from the, the peak week. Is there anything you gather for that increase off of like peak week or, or previous uh, nutrition that, that you apply? Yeah. So a lot of times it's going to be centered around what it took to load them. Um, so we can look at like refeeds throughout the end of the prep, if there were any and or what it took to load somebody throughout peak week, right? Right. Gather that information. We can see how much weight fluctuated with the amount of carbohydrates and then take typically a percentage from that if it's especially some of those individuals that take a lot. Um, so we're looking typically a primarily carbohydrate bump for me 
just I, I have a tendency to be a little bit more on the carbohydrate side unless someone does a little bit better on a higher to fat, higher fat to carb ratio. Um, so for an example, like we can just use a case study here, Ming, who just competed about five weeks ago, right? Yeah. Uh, he was very aggressively pulled down on nutrition, like just, just to make it to stage weight and make weight for his classic class, um, where he was basically functioning on residuals that last week. Um, but when I started carb loading them, it didn't take much. We ended up only loading on about 300 grams of carbs across two days, right? So obviously the first thing I'm going to address is the nutrition. Um, but I knew I didn't have to be so aggressive with only needing 300 grams of carbohydrates loading. So the first addition to his plan was 150 grams of carbs with like 15 grams of fat. And he's been progressing on that for like three and a half weeks now with conditioning staying in check, performance markers going up. We fully reset form, um, body weights up around 15 pounds now from stage about six, seven weeks post-show. Um, so moving in the right direction, um, a little bit of a fast rate of body gain, but visually it's not bad. And most of it's just fluid, to be honest. Um, so that's like a, an extreme example on the case study side, as far as someone who didn't take a lot, but we're typically looking for most people somewhere in that 100 to 300 gram of carbohydrate reintroduction, depending on where the, the base diet was and how extreme that first, that first, that last stage was for them. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's a good approach to utilize. And uh, yeah, a lot of times I'm, I'm kind of ensuring, usually people come off a show and they've been depleted. They've already been carving up. They're going to have some free meals. And so that weight coming back might be slightly elevated beyond like a little water retention. So you'll see some of that drop off, but usually that first week compared to like what they, before they weighed in, you know, what they're stable at before any type of you know, water manipulation or anything done was, was maybe like a, a two to even, you know, 3% weight increase. So say you competed as a, a light heavyweight, you were 200 pounds, maybe you're like a 205 or 206 as our starting point of after like the first week after the show. Um, now you see people that come back and they're like 10 to 20 pounds overweight. Um, you might've overdid it, <laughs> you know, you might have, or you'll, you'll have to see that that might come back down over 10 days. So I usually hold the diet that I set, let that water kind of dissipate. And once we get that baseline, then we're progressing and kind of ensuring maybe, uh, I usually go like a 1% weight increase per week post-show, uh, until I'm, until I have them not starving and like looking for pizza around every corner and, you know, waking up five times a night. <laughs> so it's a good point. Like how far they take that post-show eating, right? Yeah. Also suggest this, like someone goes berserks for a day and a half. Like we're not going to be adding a lot of food back in. We got to reset and get back to where we were. Right. Or like, like a berserk for like two days where we're up nine pounds. It's like, okay, let's introduce cardio back in. Let's kind of not be as aggressive yeah. on the food addition. Let's reset our stable point and then go from there. But if it's someone who, and this is just me, like I'm, I'm pretty quick back to it. I just don't like to get out of routine. You know, you can be pretty aggressive with someone like that. Yeah. Well, um, and there's a second part to that question too. Yeah. So jperch 23 asked, when we're progressing over time, do we focus rely mainly on pushing strength up or do we do moderate weight with higher volume and is exercise selection different than normal? Okay. So it's, 
I wasn't too clear on that one. Focusing rely more on pushing strength. Oh, okay. Or moderate. Yeah, I, I mean, the, I think the, the term gets thrown around tough with, with strength because it's uh, not our, our main thing that we're going for. So strength is, is more of a performance measure and hypertrophy is more of this part of strength <laughs> that can be, it's like part of the adaptation that can be expressed as strength. Um, so it, we can start chasing the wrong things and thinking it's indicative of what we're gaining. And uh, so strength can also be very like neurological. It could be that you're um, starting to change your form. So what, so to put this into a context is like, we, we want the logbook to be increasing, but we never want to be altering our, our form or intention and movement just to move more weight. Um, because that isn't necessarily going to be producing more hypertrophy stimulus. So that's why your first week, you're, that's why we're setting our form in place and we want to hold that as constant as possible. Then your logbook should just organically move up. So you shouldn't be forcing it up because if you're forcing up, you're just trying to work harder to move more weight. And that's not necessarily showing that you actually had some type of gain the week prior. Because what if you didn't have an adaptation your last week of training? Do you have the physical capability to lift more load or more weight or more reps? No, you wouldn't. You would just be able to do the same thing. The only way you would be able to do more is by like cheating your reps or maybe you were at an RIR of one and now you're at a zero. So you just work harder. Um, and you know that's, that's not what you wanna be chasing for hypertrophy and bodybuilding purposes. Uh, so it's still like, we wanna set our main tenets for hypertrophy training you know, within all of our programming. So we should have the typically working in your moderate rep ranges. I never really ever go below six anymore. And mainly within 15 reps from there, six to 15 is kind of where I really, really have most of my, my volume. So off, off this question, yeah, it's mostly moderate loads that I'm using and volume is just an, uh, based off of my recovery capacity. So uh, whether that's, you know, within 10 or up to 12 or 14 sets, it's just wherever I'm at from a recovery standpoint. And then the exercise selection aspect will definitely determine that too. So if, you know, I'm coming off from post-show, a lot of times I start bringing in movements that, that I've evaluated off my picks and I want to put back in place. So it's like, okay, John, you need more, you need more ass, your glutes, just, they're just not there. It's like, okay, well, I've only been doing hack squats and say I was doing front squats. It's like, I probably need something that has a little bit more hip flexion. And I'm going to go to, from my hack squat, I'm going to go back to back squatting. And so that would be a, a much more dramatic overall fatiguing movement. And it might limit my volume in other areas. So it's definitely your exercise selection is going to play, play into that, whether you could do a little bit more or a little bit less. But again, that's why that first week, it's just set at your like base volume with your lower RIR. So you can gauge that your first week and then make the adjustments on your following weeks of what you should do regarding maybe, maybe your volume from there. I think a good thing too is like we, we refer to this base volume because it's 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 an area in which we can gather information in order on what to do next, right? So maybe outside week one to two where the strength prog progress could be rather large, um, if we continue to see some very very large increase in progressions, 
we probably have information that we can add a little bit of volume into that plan because your recovery capacity is very well exceeding, you know, what is needed to recover from the volume you're training at. And so we can look to then bump volume up until we get more normal progressions, right? Outside of possibly learning a new movement pattern. Um, but if it's a pattern that's been in all of prep and you're seeing these like you're into week three and four and five and these jumps are very large relative to the movement pattern, probably could have a little bit more volume within that pattern itself um, or that body part specifically. Um, and we can also see this happen across different body parts, right? Like we'll see like possibly chest is making normal progressions, but legs aren't. And so we can possibly handle a little bit more volume on legs, but not chest. And this can be a little bit of a, a local thing as well. So just something to consider is why we start at that base volume is it will give you information back on, on what to do from there. And I, I know like what is base volume? And that's like, that's a huge dive of a question, which is probably a whole topic for a, a day. Um, but that, that will be established like through training experience. But just if you don't know at all, I, I think starting with, this is where like literature would come into place and, you know, something around probably the, six to eight set mark per muscle group might be a good place just to, Hey, see where you can start out from there. But you know, most people, if we're talking about post-show, you can, you know what you've been training at. Right. Yeah. And so that's, that's a starting point. And then from there, you know, what, it, what is an addition? Like if you find like Luke's talking about uh, a muscle group where you're like, man, recovery is awesome. Um, you're seeing some, some progression, like, could I do more? And that's a very valid question. And how much more should I do? And I think it's reasonable to start with a one set addition for that one muscle group. So I've had some people put our post show that start feeling badass. <laughs> you know, the food's up, super pumped, um, recovery feels great, sleeps back to normal. And they're like, hey, I'm thinking about adding a set to, to all my muscle groups. <laughs> like, holy shit. Okay, so if you're doing like, you know, maybe for every, for every muscle group, that might be like, I don't know, 80 sets or so um, that you're doing total for your whole body. And then you add a set for everything. Like you, you could be uh, tremendously increasing volume. So like a, like about a 10 to 20% volume increase for maybe one or two muscle groups would be a good place to where you don't just jump into this huge recovery debt. I think a lot of the guys that we're talking to or even girls, you've been competing, you've had some experience so, um, you know, it's, it's starts to become unlikely that you can just be, continue to overall grow everything. Um, you might start having to pick and choose like, a, like for, for myself, um, I can't just bring up everything for one, I'm in a, within a weight restriction class. So I have to put focus into like weak body parts. So for me, it just might be like, Hey, this mesocycle, this block of training will just be shoulders and traps. So for like, when I, came off this past Olympia prep, you know, I had my base volume set that following week. I'm like, well, oh, delts feel really good. I added delts onto one of my other training days for, for two sets, which was, you know, a, a reasonable increase. And then the, the following week, it's like, okay, well, trap volume is really good. I add a set to traps and I'm, I'm now I'm, I'm kind of holding there and just letting the progressions happen. Cause I feel like that, that was a good spot to be at. So um, just be conservative with your, your set increases and volume increases because it's very quick post-show, you feel badass and you're rapidly increasing strength and reps and you're adding more sets. And all of a sudden that's when the injury happens. You run into overuse. You're like, what happened? I was feeling great. The next week I fell apart. It's like, yeah, you started like just doing more than what you can recover from.
<laughs> yeah, and I think that I think that that's very valuable too, in the sense that we do have to understand that this is an ebb and flow type of thing, depending on a lot of factors like training age, ability to get as much out of a set, um, even life factors, right? So, you know, we can't always look to like the training volume we trained at, you know, two years ago relative or last year even to where we are now and be able to set these parameters for base volume. Um, and it needs to be a little bit more localized to the time, time frame in which we're in and the life settings which we're in as well. Um, because like I know nowadays, like for me, my leg volume compared to when I did my last show is, is drastically down, but it's also a, a product of me being able to get more out of every set that I do. Right. And so that is another consideration when testing this base volume and, and not, don't be afraid to test it. Right. You're not going to know until you find out, like just start somewhere, start to test it, see how you're doing, use that data to come back and then make changes as you go. If you go too far, deload, and then now you know where your, your breaking point is at the moment, right? So um, it, it's, it's not something to do like hastily and adding sets everywhere, but you know, don't be afraid to test, test the waters and, and kind of pick and choose and go from there. But I do think that transfers us into that next question really well, John. Yeah. Um, as far as from at heel underscore with steel, is progress being made with straight sets or slash when do you begin reintroducing intensity techniques? More set additions, <laughs> right? So, um, yeah, I, I feel like we, we've covered this quite a bit, but mainly I, I will be first adding in straight sets. Um, for one, I, I think like just, even if we want to go off like evidence, most of this, the literature comparing like straight sets versus some of the intensity techniques, cluster sets, um, sets just with shorter rest periods in general seem to produce less effective sets. And so you have to do more of them to kind of equate it out. And um, so you, you need to have a certain recovery ability between each set to be able to recruit as much muscle fiber because what happened to you like fatiguing these fibers and it's one that you just like, well, recruit more, more fibers now in your next sets. Uh, you're actually just diminished in your ability to recruit all fibers um, so you're not getting as good of a stimulus. So straight sets additions is mainly what I will go to first. Um, then as far as intensity techniques go, if I do add those in, um, I find that they do have more of a metabolic effect. And I also find that they're better applied into like a very stable braced isolation movement. Um, for one, they're, they're very highly fatigue generating um, to do like a drop set on back squats. Like you, you'll probably, you might die, <laughs> you know, um, versus like a drop set on a bicep curl. Like that's not like, yes, it'll be challenging, but it also won't like ruin the rest of your, your session. So I think from a, a time saving aspect, um, they may make sense towards the end of the work workout if you're trying to add a little bit of volume into like your isolation movements. And maybe that's also probably a, a, a less aggressive set addition to an isolation movement versus a very, very large compound movement. Um, but my focus on isolation movements, yes, I want to see load increases, but on those movements, I'm really, really focusing on just getting a, a great connection and taking that set to a point where you feel that like, you know, metabolic accumulation, the pump, the burn, whatever you want to call it. And so rest, pause, intensity techniques, I think that's a great way to accomplish it on those movements. 
Yeah, and I think I think you're very accurate in your viewpoint of looking at literature here to see what the the requisite stimulus is versus the in the studies that have done intensity techniques relative to straight sets. And with with that in mind is kind of where I form my opinion in that um, I will only be using them typically in like single joint exercises for for blood flow uh, focused type of goals within the exercise. But also, I'm really kind of only bringing them in when we're starting to push the brink of the, the volume landmark in which that individual can handle, because it is a little bit less of an addition relative to a set, right? So if I have that capacity to take a set on a volume addition, that's where I'm going first. Um, but if we're starting to push the brink of that, where we're kind of not really sure if we really have a full set stimulus to add, that's possibly where I'm adding an intensity technique. So, you know, for a lot of people that it ends up that like, you don't really even dive into them too far because you're just still kind of figuring out where those landmarks are for that individual. And um, if they're still doing good with the set additions and then just chasing those set additions until, you know, you find out where their breaking point is. And then once you know where the breaking point is, you can kind of take a step back and then within that next phase, use it at the right point when set additions can no longer come in so that's kind of for me where I view them you know I know it's been this huge like this past whole year in the literature has been like all volume and where should we be for volume and sets and that's like all we hear about and just have to remember like this is this inverted u-curve of volume to where there's you could be on the lower end of this curve you're still making gains not that you're not, it's not like, you know, your eight sets isn't going to work, but maybe you move up that curve onto 10 sets and maybe you'll make a little bit more gains, but then maybe 12 sets on the opposite end of that U curve, you start making less gains because it's starting to tap into it. That also might not be a sustainable amount of volume for you to where you're going to have reoccurring deloads needed. Now, what if you go to 14, you're like way on the end and you're, you're barely making gains and then you're having a deload every three weeks. It's like, well, that's not, that's not ideal. So I think a lot of this research is just showing like what, that their volume is dosage related and, and not that we have to be going all over the spectrum of this U. Uh, like if, I think sustainability and adherence is the foundation of a training plan. So even if you're on the lower end of that U curve, how, how much faster will you grow being at the top of it? That's a great question. I don't think we can really answer that. I think sustainability adherence probably weighs in more if you have someone that can stay on the lower end not get injured as much not occur overuse injuries um over time that person might actually be be ahead but you know at, at what point if you're just like have a certain amount of sets and you don't change it and you just train hard most of these guys end up at the same point like i know people that have not really changed the amount of sets that they've done over time they're not waving volume or anything but they still end up to an advanced level so um i don't I don't want people to like take set additions and just go carried away with it because I don't think it's this ultimate game changer that we're finding. Like you're going to add a set and all of a sudden you're going to spur on all this new, new growth. But the, the, the point that, you know, Luke and I have here is that there is a place to test those though um, to make sure you're not just way, way underdosing it, or you have this weak body part that is not growing possibly because of that reason after you've ruled out all the form and execution points. This might help the, the audience for some context. So for my, my entire last training block across my last push up, which was about 14 weeks, the total volume set addition for me was three sets of lateral raises for delts and one set of tricep pushdowns. 
Yeah, that's not a lot. <laughs> Everything else I had nailed is yeah. where I had maximally adapted for for training, right? Like chest, like chest training was barely recovering by the next session, but I was still taking performance progress on every session. Same with back. Um, legs was a little tweaky because I I'd had that injury. So it was more me just not messing with the volume until I knew I was back at full capacity more than anything. Um, and then, you know, I felt like shoulders and arms, which is a weak point for me, which is where I'm going to prioritize volume additions, you know, is probably going to be that. So like, that's also, I had very accurate information from training blocks before about where I was going to be pretty close to maximally adapting at. Right. So, um, it might take a little bit more of a set addition for you, but it's not going to be a ton across a training block. So when you added those set additions, were you seeing further improvement in training performance week to week, or would you say it was like pretty steady or, or hard to, hard to pull that out? Pretty steady. Cause I actually pulled a frequency card there. So I went from shoulders twice a week to three times a week with the shoulder volume addition and the same with the tricep push down. Um, is, is training it three times across my split setup, which is technically eight days. Um, but that was kind of my thing. And the performance just steadied out a little bit instead of like taking these large jumps, which I was doing with delts, like delt, like lateral raise jumps in like five, six rep range, like additions. So I knew that I could handle more. So that's where it kind of steadied out into that, you know, little bumps in load, little bumps in reps per set once I did that. Th that's interesting because I think a lot of people think, well, if you add in sets, you would, should be, if, and if you're on the, that curve where you have, like, you can make greater adaptations that week to week, you should be making more gym performance gains, more strength gains. Right. But that's not the case. No, it's not always going to be the case. Could it be? Have you seen people like start jumping more up in progress in that, in that case, or. If the stimulus is too low, for sure, right? Because we're starting to match their capacity to the training stimulus, right? So if we're not creating enough of a stimulus for an adaptation to occur, then we're not going to see as much progress week to week when we get into the gym, right? So this will happen a lot of times with new clientele that come in. I might misjudge their volume on the, on the beginning stages, and I typically err a little bit on the low side because I can then start to add from there, is you'll err on the low side. You're like seeing these progressions aren't really what you expected them to be at the gate. Um, there's no fatigue associated. You start adding a little bit of volume and they start adapting a little bit better. And we see the progression start to go up. You know that you're starting to approach a level in which their training capacity can handle or their training stimulus is allowing them to adapt to the stimulus that's provided a little bit better. So they progress at a faster rate. Yeah. And that makes sense. And, and so like, I think it's good to look at hey, a strength routine versus a hypertrophy routine with strength routines. They're typically lower in volume because you don't really want to generate any fatigue because you want to be able to perform and week to week, higher amounts of fatigue can mask that performance. Now there's set programs set up to reach like, you know, you know functional overreaching, but in general, like if, if you're like, Hey, I have to make sure I have high gym performance every week. We'll just train with lower volumes. But that also might, like your point, you might be able to do more and might not have uh, optimal hypertrophy gains. Because we've seen in these studies where they compare set volumes that typically the strength gains are about even across all groups, whether they're doing, you know, just throwing it out there, like 10 sets, 15 sets, or 20 sets across weeks of training, um, they might have the same strength gains, but the higher volume groups might have better hypertrophy gains in a lot of these instances. 
Um, so it makes sense if you're making these huge jumps in load and reps, that set addition might make sense. And then also, because I've done it where I've had post-show and my um, volume was probably lower than what it needed to be, and I'm making these huge load jumps, and I've gotten injured. <laughs> um, and so maybe the better approach then was like, hey, before I jump way up in load and reps, I, I add that set in and make more minor load and rep increases. And that would probably be more of a hypertrophy setup um, than playing into my, my ego of chasing the logbook and strength numbers, right? <laughs> yeah, and I think that points to like we're in hardcore bodybuilding, especially now, like with the logbooks being so prevalent, it's so, so perpetuated that, you know, the, I can keep jumping and jumping and jumping. And in reality, like if your program is pretty accurate from a volume landmark standpoint, it's just going to be ticking up. Like it's just going to be ticking up. You're going to be taking reps here and there. You're going to be taking minor low jumps here and there. And obviously training age is going to kind of, kind of play into this as well. The more advanced you are, the less you're going to see that. But to that point, we can still use program to program setup to manage that. Yeah. Well, I think we just knocked that one out of the park, Luke. On the, yeah. <laughs> and I think, got off on a, ram, a, a ramble, but um, let's, let's check out our, this other did. question by at Bolo built upper body needs to catch up relative to legs, how to approach off season with this goal. And so this is kind of getting into just weak body part in general. We, we've, we've touched on a few of these topics here. And if it was just, upper body as a whole I wonder if you're like if this was like a men's physique competitor but um just in general like general programming is if you do have that discrepancy um of course form checking is is essential here so making sure you are getting the most out of your upper body training by executing the list properly and you don't have any um like a, a lot of issues that i had for instance in my chest were from weak rotator cuff muscles that were causing my, my pec minor, my, my bicep to overcompensate in that pattern to where I, I just couldn't even activate my chest. Like I could set up and I could have a beautiful looking lift and no matter how hard I try because of these compensations that happen and my, I just couldn't neurally activate the muscle. So I could have the perfect routine built. It just won't matter. So I think at first, like addressing also, if you're having true dysfunction in those areas and you're gonna have to do it with a rehab professional that, that can assess you, um, which is why you need like a multidisciplinary approach in bodybuilding, just like you are with any other sports team. But I think that's kind of a starting point is looking at just basic movements. If you can do those and have the mobility to do them. And then if you also have some type of compensation going on, to uh, even even activate the muscle properly. Yeah, and I think <clears throat> the rehab approach with a multidisciplinary individual, or having a multidisciplinary approach to bodybuilding with someone that's like a clinical professional within rehab, is something that's missed a lot, right? Like, I mean, it's funny, I saw this question, I thought of me coming out of the last show, it was like, lower body of a heavyweight, the upper body of a middleweight, somewhere <laughs> in light heavy. Thanks. Of me, I said me, not you. Um, but I saw this question. I was like, you know, we can tilt the scales with volume with, with setup and frequency probably towards upper body, but until we address all of the issues that are directly leading to the stimulus that is created within training, we're not going to address that body part fully. So like, for example, a primary issue for me was straightest anterior function for me is just almost completely gone or it was, 
right? Until I started going to a very well-renowned uh, Cairo who works with a lot of individuals in various different sports, were able to kind of figure out what my limitations were from uh, not only what was limiting my straightest interior, but some of my rotator cuffs had some deficiencies relative to the other ones, um, has allowed me to improve performance across, you know, pretty much all of my upper body musculature. That serratus anterior is so responsible for scapular motion around the rib cage. Like scapular motion and, and ability to use it in stability is going to affect pretty much every upper body body part when it comes to training, right? So not that serratus anterior is ne necessarily your issue, but using or, or going to someone to figure out what your issue is will help you make that training much more effective where maybe the volume additions aren't what's needed. It's just the effectiveness of your training. Yeah. I know for a lot of people like, Hey, I don't have the money to go to all these, have all these different coaches and stuff on hand. Like, yeah, I think there's also some great education resources out there. And you know, that is not my specialty. So like J3 university, we're not going to have this in-depth functional analysis. Cause that's just not, not me. Um, I think uh, just to give someone like some insight, I think Jordan Shallows, has a, a good a good site on um, you know his prehab site where you could pick up and 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 learn some good stuff for functional movement and an assessment that you can do on your own and it's not going to be costly guys so I think like that would, could be a good resource to check out um, Jordan he's very educated in that area um, even stuff that I've done on my own is trying to do my own assessment is just taking a lacrosse ball and rolling around all the different areas like if it's a shoulder issue rolling everywhere trying to find a sensitive point. And typically that sensitive point is something that is not wanting to move or is weak or has some impedance in there. Um, and that might be a spot where you could use some of that to um, release that muscle and get some heightened activation in it. And then going into your session from there, you might have some improved stability. But then also that might be an indicator of like a weakness within a muscle. So typically like when I've gone through the rehab process for my shoulder, usually when like, you know, he finds something that hurts to push on. It's also something that just happens to be like a really weak muscle too. So it gives me some insight of like, hey, this is something I probably need to find a movement where I, I can train it. And not a movement where I'm like trying to load the hell out of it and progress in the logbook, a movement that challenged it specifically in a very functional manner. Um, so for me, like, it was my, ro my rotator cuff, infraspinatus, supraspinatus. So it was like, you know, doing some, um, some kettlebell holds out in front of me laying on my on my back and then uh, protracting retracting the scapula then going through some band external rotations um, and so I do that before all all of my my push upper body days but not to uh the tangent off in this rehab aspect like if you if you're past that step and now it's time to like really address like and, and you've also addressed like okay I can I can activate these muscles um, I've done my prehab work. Like what's your step from there? I think just to ensure going into that session, like after you've done like your mobility, your, your prehab stuff, get into some type of activation of the direct muscle you want to train. So for instance, if you're doing like lats uh, and that's your focus, you're like, my lats haven't been growing. It's like getting, getting it to where you can get that muscle short and get it activated and good blood in that area. So you can have build that mind muscle connection and, um, first I ever saw was like John Meadows doing these with the bands was just putting a band out in front of you, wrapping around the wrist and then doing almost like a row and trying to drive that elbow back behind the back and feel that lat squeeze. Like it's going to cramp and then holding it for five to 10 seconds, releasing, and then doing like 10 reps like that. 
until you feel like, oh man, I have this like lat pump, I can feel it, then going to your movements from there. So I think like activation is kind of like a, a starting point um, after the prehab too. Yeah, you, you've probably seen some of the way that I address this. I really like isometrics with shortened range of motion within this activation setup. So like for a lat, for example, like grabbing a, a cable with a, a long rope and getting into that pullover retract pullover position, like we're doing a cable pullover with the cable height set where it's fully in the shortened position and really only moving like three inches for that range of motion in that shortened position so that we're spending a lot of time in that shortened lat um, after we've held an isometric for a period of time, which is going to allow us to hold a contraction and elevate central nervous system activity within that area. Um, and make it specific to your training session, right? Like if you start with a lat movement, do a lat one. If you start with an upper back movement, let's do an upper back one, right? If we're starting with chest pattern on a push day, let's, let's do a chest pattern one first, right? Making it specific rather than just going through the motions. Yeah, so now that we've probably not just answered what you wanted to hear, <laughs> like, dude, what do I just, well, how do I train? Just tell me how I, how I train. So um, I, I think from that goes back to like a lot of the conversations we were having earlier about looking at your, your total volume for the week and what your recovery capacity is. I think for a lot of people, it, it's likely, if you truly are accurately assessing, if you need to bring up that body part, but say you really are behind, then it, it would be um, allocating volume to that body part so you can um, put all recovery resources there because you need more stimulus to that area basically. Um, we've addressed how to get a lot of that stimulus through like making sure you're activating it right and, and, and et cetera, but you just might actually need more work done in that area and you might have to scale back work in another area. So say you had a, a push-pull leg split. You did push, pull off day, legs off or something like that. Rather than continuing to rotate through that split, um, I, think it's e I think it's an easy way to, to just look at splits and, and allocate volume, but you could do a push, pull off, legs off, push, pull off, then rotate back in to push, pull. So you at your leg training is like far spread out and maybe that drops legs down to like a more of a maintenance level of stimulus. Um, and then you have that frequency increase um, for upper body. Now that's one aspect. There's other ways that you could increase training volume outside of just changing your, your, your frequency and your uh, amount of rest days too. What, yeah. Oh, my bad. No, no. You, and you already brought one up, right? With what you've done with your training, your split didn't change. Yeah. I just, I added a frequency. I think frequency is a volume card that's not played enough. Honestly, I think that if we're looking to take, you know, better quality sets to a body part, right? And when you have a frequency card to play, rather than tack it on at the end of a push day where we've already done seven sets of delts before we do this extra set, like we can take it at a high quality on a day it's not gonna affect the performance elsewhere. So like a common one is like I was doing lateral raises with my arm day, right? My arm sucks, so it has its own day. And so I attacked it on to the beginning. It didn't take anything away from my arm training. But you could do that for legs too, like tack it on. Like I know you've done bicep work prior to, to yeah. leg day before and stuff. And that frequency cards often miss. Now this may be an accurate question for someone and you kind of address it straight out the gate. Would you set, would you tilt the scales to set up that person um, straight post contest to a little bit more of that focus for whatever the body part may be? 
I, I think it depends off off their their state the stage and what they really need to accomplish throughout that off season period. Because if you're someone that's that's higher end, that doesn't need much more development at all total in that area, then you probably probably could have more of that extreme tip of the scale. From like myself, for example, like my my, my legs are always a, a strong point. Like they're where they need to be for the, within the division. Um, but I still have these lacking parts, usually, you know, chest, delt, trap area. And so for me, I, I just, I don't need this balanced growth approach. I need a very, very focused approach. And so training legs once a week, or what I've actually like is actually just training them very, very low volume, but with the same uh, frequency. Um, but now the other opposite end, if you have someone that still needs to grow their legs, you don't want to tip that scale too much. So that might be running the same split, but just pulling two sets off the leg day and adding a little bit onto the upper body day. So the frequency won't change, but you'll still have an increase in stimulus per session, but that leg session won't, won't dip you down in, into a recovery hole too much. Um, what I have experienced and it's something to note is just you're also connective tissue re recoverability. Um, cause I've done my, my last 2019, um, post-show I, I did the one leg day a week and I was having two push pull days a week, which the stimulus was great. The frequency was great, but to come back in that frequent, my connective tissue couldn't recover fast enough. So I could handle muscular wise, the recovery, uh, but as like the down up in the attachment points and overuse injuries, they, it wasn't happening. So I, I couldn't go to that frequency to increase volume because of that aspect. So I need to keep that same frequency and what's worked better. This the, currently what I'm doing now is um, keep the split the same, but just move the sets around a little bit. There's certain muscle groups that are, are okay though, that won't recover. Like me having two push days, the pecs just won't recover at that frequency. Side delts, I could do them every other day and that works well. So I think that also comes into the individual aspect of each muscle frequency. Um, so you, you, there's some weaknesses in just trying to do more frequent of your total split, uh, but it, it does get muscle group dependent too. Yeah, you kind of nailed what I, what I was trying to pull out of you there. I think a lot of people go into the specialized body part splits too fast mm -hmm. when they still need to grow as a bodybuilder, right? Like that was me, like, yeah, my upper body was a little lacking those are my legs. My legs needed to get bigger still. Didn't overly change my split setup until like three months ago, right? And that was April of 2019. So we were training at the same frequency, just kind of moved some of the volume to upper body and it, it's worked. Like we're, we're a little bit more balanced now. Yeah, if you're talking like, hey, I want to put 10 pounds of stage weight on the year or something like that, that you, you're probably going to have to just hit your, your big areas first. And that's going to be, you know, what, what do you need? when you come off stage, you know, what's going to be the biggest impact to get you to the highest level as fast as possible. And for most people, it's just adding on more total mass quality, you know, not just throwing it on everywhere, but to your big groups, your, your back, your legs, chest, delts. Usually it's arms that I always have people say like, I want an arm day. My arms are weak. It's like, well, if you put all this work into arm training and it takes away from your other training days, like, are you going to be able to, move up a weight class, it, you're going to limit yourself. And so it's probably best to just put all that allocation to your major muscle groups, put a little bit of emphasis where you need it. But then once you get to that advanced level, well then drill, drill the weak body parts and you can set those other ones to, to a maintenance. 
Well, John, I think we, I think we've kind of nailed this, this post-show training concept. Add to kind of a subject. Um, yeah, I think that wraps up. We're right, right at time. So, you know, leading from the, the post-show area, you just assess your stage picks, assess where you're coming from and let that guide you into your, your post-show setup. Um, and, and an accurate of where you're trying to go from there. So it's, it's real easy to look acutely and let emotions drive you as well. Um, but look at your big time, your big picture of like, what do you need long-term? And that should drive your decisions and how you're setting up your programming. But off that initial prep, base it around what you have been doing. So don't look at all these other programs that are out there that you wanna to try to jump to, stick to what you know, and then do some minor testing along the way. But anyway, guys, thank you for tuning in to this first episode of J3 University Podcast. We will talk to you next time.